Here's the tease. And I can't speak for them. But I can explain my flagrantly visible shirt tail hanging out there for the entire TV and viewing audience to see. Congratulations. Through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor, you've stumbled onto this digital booyah base. Hosted by yours truly, hipster grandfather David A. Holland. Here, we explore the too-good-to-be-true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually accomplished and launched 2,000 years ago. A new covenant, a better covenant, based on better promises. So, check your religion at the door, grab a beverage, grab a Bible, strap in, gird your loins. This is the new and better podcast. So we're in the run-up to Holy Week, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, and all the things that make us extra mindful of what Jesus accomplished by laying down on that cross. We'll explore today the stunning implications of those events in this and the next episode of your new favorite podcast. But first, a letter. This letter from a sweet but concerned gentleman in Florida who saw me on television It flooded in a few weeks ago. This is from Ken in Florida. Pastor Holland, I am making an observation. I've made this observation and asked several churches in my city of city name redacted to please respond and they haven't yet. Why have our church pastors and those in worship teams started wearing t-shirts, jeans, and wearing their shirt tails out? The tie in a lot of churches, is never seen anymore. It seems that the church of our Lord has allowed the world to dictate how they look. I grew up in church and I always saw the pastor and church leaders wearing their best, a suit and tie. Why not today? Why shouldn't we look our best when we go to God's house? Again, not meant as a criticism, just an observation, but would really like to find out what your opinion is. I see you on TBN, and you always have your shirt tail out. Why? Thank you. In Jesus' name, Ken. First of all, Ken, thank you for your letter. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to write. Now, let me try to tackle your question. I'm going to take a wild guess and say you were a junior high principal in the 70s. I'm an expert because I was in junior high in the 70s. Or perhaps you served as an officer in the military. Or perhaps became a high school principal after serving as an officer in the military. Whatever the case, thank you for your service. I mean that. I suspect that combat duty in Vietnam was excellent preparation for being a junior high principal in the 70s. And I'm truly sorry that you haven't received a response from the t-shirt and denim wearing worship leaders you've queried in your area. And I can't speak for them, but I can explain my flagrantly visible shirt tail hanging out there for the entire TV and viewing audience to see. First of all, fashions and styles have changed consistently over the centuries. It actually seems like the only constant is change and Change is harder for some than others. Again, I can't speak for everyone, but I find that the belly I've grown over the last couple of decades makes wearing a shirt tail out 
both more comfortable for me and more aesthetically pleasing to most others, although not all, obviously. And the psychologists tell me that shirt buttons struggling to hold on under the strain can make some viewers subconsciously nervous about losing an eye, even though it's television. Seriously, the primary focus of my teaching ministry is to help people move from lifeless religion to life-giving connection to God by His grace. My experience suggests that a preoccupation with form and outward appearances is a possible warning sign that religion is in the driver's seat. The very purpose of this podcast is helping believers discover that there is great freedom, joy, and fruitfulness to be found in rejecting religion and embracing the rest in Jesus' finished work. And given that that is our mission, gentle viewer, let's get on with it. Easter's coming, and I have some amazing news for you just ahead. But first, page two. Hey gang, my brand new book launched this week, just in time for delivery for Mother's Day. It's a 55-day devotional called Praying Grace for Women. It's a special follow-up to my earlier book, Praying Grace, which currently, for some reason, has more than 200,000 copies in print out there in the wild, blessing people and setting them free. I sincerely believe this new devotional is even better. Now, you may be wondering, David Holland, what qualifies you to write a devotional for women? You are clearly of the dudular persuasion? That's a fair question. And here is my answer. As you can see, I had some lovely and compelling reasons to write this new collection of meditations to you. My journey through life has gifted me with a front row seat for what daughters of God battle daily and what causes them to thrive in God. You see, I'm in my fourth decade of marriage to one such woman. I love and admire her more than I could express. I really, really like her too. I know it's a cliche, but she is my best friend. Together, we were gifted with three daughters who, by God's enabling grace, we've watched grow into remarkable women of God. Now, our babies are having babies, and of our seven grandchildren, we count five girls in the mix seems like I've been surrounded by glorious femininity for about as long as I can remember. I'm confident that if you were to ask any of these ladies if this gray beard has some helpful spiritual insights to share about appropriating God's abundant grace for rest, peace, intimacy with God, and breakthrough, I'd get a rousing endorsement from them, at least from the ones who can talk. Secondly, spiritual truth is, frankly, spiritual truth. And that's why I believe this collection, like its predecessor, Praying Grace, will find a treasured place on the nightstands and end tables of many women of God. Now, the devotions are divided into four sections. Grace for rest, grace for intimacy with God, grace for peace, and grace for breakthrough. Hop online right now and order it from your favorite online bookseller. Mother's Day is coming. Now, let's get back to revealing some mysteries concerning the cross and Jesus' true mission. The Savior's final words from the cross were basically a prayer, a prayer of childlike faith. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. 
That's Luke 23:46. Then his bleeding head dropped in the release of death. But only moments earlier, the witnesses gathered around the dying Savior heard him shout something else. A single word that was basically, oddly enough, a Greek accounting term. Tetelestai. We find it in John 19.30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Underneath that simple phrase, it is finished, is that Greek word, tetelestai. Our English Bibles translate that term in a way that drains it of power and erases the legal and financial connotations it clearly carried for hearers of Jesus' day. The best most translators can come up with is that plain vanilla phrase, it is finished. Others say, it is completed, or it is accomplished. None of these is anywhere near adequate to convey the extraordinary meaning and implications carried by that word. Tetelestai doesn't mean that a thing has concluded. It does not simply indicate that the plus-sized lady with the Viking horns has sung, the curtain has come down and the show is over, that Porky has stammered out, that's all, folks. No, to declare a thing tetelestai is to decree that all has been accomplished. Everything formerly lacking has now been supplied. The wound has been healed. The obligation has been met. In other words, the debt has been completely satisfied. Okay, now brace yourself for some grammar talk. Remember grammar? It's okay, you'll survive this. Tetelestai is a verb. You know, an action word. And verbs have tenses. And the tense of the verb Jesus used is the perfect passive indicative tense. That's right, you heard me. Perfect passive indicative. And it means that an action has been completed, but that the results of that action will continue with full effect going forward. In other words, what Jesus accomplished on the cross was total and complete satisfaction of a debt and it would continue to be paid in full for all time. Jesus' tetelestai declared an end to man's Tower of Babel religious striving to build a ladder back to heaven. God himself had come down and done what no fallen man could do. Satisfy mankind's staggering legal and spiritual obligation to divine justice. In an 1861 sermon, Charles Spurgeon explained what Jesus meant when he cried from the cross, it is finished. Spurgeon explained, the Savior meant that the satisfaction which he rendered to the justice of God was finished. The debt was now, to the last farthing, all discharged. The atonement and propitiation which were made once and for all and forever by the one offering made in Jesus' body on the tree Living in the freedom and rest of the new covenant begins with an understanding of Jesus' cry of Tetelestai. Understanding the implications of that one word brings you to the humbling, liberating realization that Christ has done all the work for your atonement. All that remains is to receive it. Now, let's look at some other words of Jesus that carry this same amazing message. As we saw a moment ago, one of Jesus' final declarations from the cross was the word tetelestai, paid in full. 
the obligation has been fully met. Well, our new understanding of this word sheds some light on another misunderstood saying of Jesus, one regarding the law and the prophets. In Matthew 5:17 in the NIV, we hear Jesus say, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Many well-meaning believers have taken Jesus' statement that he did not come to abolish the law to mean that he was leaving the old covenant regulations in place, or at least some of them. Well, that's just not the case. The entire New Testament books of Galatians and Hebrews make it clear that this cannot possibly be what he meant. Well, his true meaning comes sharply into focus when you realize that the Old Covenant viewed the law and its requirements as an obligation to be paid to God. And that failing to meet that obligation, sinning, failing to keep the law, resulted in a debt to God. Paul had this sense of debt or obligation in mind when he wrote in Colossians 2.14 that Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Simply abolishing the law would have left the debt unpaid, the obligation unmet. But his glorious answer when he was asked if he came to abolish the law was no, I came to fulfill it. In other words, I've come to completely fulfill once and for all the obligation of the law. He came to satisfy my debt to the law, your debt too. Well, that's something none of us had the capital to do ourselves. It's just too big and we're just too flawed. We couldn't satisfy our debt to the perfect immutable law of God, and God, in his righteousness, could not just simply sweep that debt away with a wave of his hand. No, the obligation to the law had to be satisfied. So Jesus came and did that for you and for me. He fulfilled our obligation to the law, and as a result, we are debt-free. Pretty cool, huh? Well, we've got one more mystery to ponder concerning something Jesus said from the cross, and we'll solve that mystery just ahead. But first, page three. Hey, just one more quick reminder to jump online and order my new book, Praying Grace for Women. And you might as well grab the original devotional, Praying Grace, while you're at it. Both train you in a kind of praying that is super powerful and, frankly, crazy effective. At the end of each devotional, you'll find something I call a declaratory prayer or a declaration of grace. It's a prayer that proclaims rather than pleads. And it's the kind of praying Jesus invariably did when some miraculous thing was about to happen. So go get them. And remember, Mother's Day is coming at us mighty fast. Now, I promise to reveal and solve another mystery concerning the final words of our amazing Savior from the cross. Now, this may seem weird, but to make sense of it, we need to pause and wonder where we'll find the busiest, most crowded intersection in the world. That's right. Where is the busiest intersection on the planet? Now, you might think it lies somewhere on your daily commute, but some folks who have studied the science of urban traffic flow, and yes, there are such folks, believe they've found the world's most congested intersection in Dhaka City, the capital of Bangladesh, home to 11 million inhabitants. 
pull up a map and find the spot in Dhaka where South Road crosses Zahir Rehan Road. And a satellite image will reveal that this city's crazy busy bus depot is right off to the side there. At any given moment of any day, the intersection is filled with buses headed for or departing the depot. And every available space between those buses and the intersection is filled by thousands of cars and taxis. And any and all remaining space between these is in turn filled by swarms of motorcycles, tuk-tuks, and bicycles by the thousands. Now, imagine all of these drivers and riders ignoring the designated lane lines and freely disregarding the traffic signals. It's something to behold. Now, I want you to contrast that scene with the site of the loneliest intersection in history. What is the loneliest intersection there ever was? It is the place where two rough beams of wood crossed. This desolate crossroads sat atop a skull-shaped hill near the garbage dump outside the walls of the capital of a troubled backwater province on the periphery of the vast Roman Empire. And at the center of that wooden intersection hung a solitary figure, the darling of heaven, the one sent to reveal the Father's love to us, abandoned in every way that a person can be. His closest friends had fled in fear. In fact, one of his two closest friends even denied he even knew him. The throngs that had followed him, hung on his every word, partaken freely of his healing power, joyously received their dead back from the grave at his command, eaten miraculous meals of fish and loaves from his hands. These all had rushed home and bolted the door. At that intersection hung a man so utterly alone that even his heavenly father hid his face. It is then that the soldiers and mockers heard him cry out something in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. In our language, my Lord and my God, why have you forsaken me? In the 20th century since that anguished cry rang out across the barren Judean hills, countless people have speculated as to why Jesus would utter it. To some readers, it seemed to express surprise and bewilderment. Two things Jesus never once showed in his previous 33 years on earth. The fact is, Jesus was not expressing surprise. He was quoting scripture. Specifically, he recites Psalm 22.1, a messianic passage that not only expresses the psalmist David's heartache in a moment of despair, but looked prophetically forward through the centuries to the day his descendant, the promised Messiah, would deliver and redeem the whole world through his sacrifice. You see, Jesus was a man of Scripture. In fact, a stunning percentage of the red-lettered words in our Bibles are direct references to Old Testament passages. Jesus of Nazareth had defined his life, his mission, and his message purely and wholly in the light of God's Word. It seems that every circumstance and every challenge brought a scripture to Jesus' lips. When confronted by the devil, Jesus quoted scripture. He cited it to answer his disciples' endless questions. He quoted it to refute and confound the Sadducees, Pharisees, and Sanhedrin. 
But then, in that moment, alone, he had no one to quote it to but himself. As the aggregated sin and depravity of an entire human race fell upon one man, a pure and holy father was forced to withdraw his life-giving, comforting presence from his only begotten son. As Jesus felt his father pull away, as he learned for the first time in his eternal existence what it meant to be separated from God, a scripture comes to mind. Only one. Jesus knew something well that we need to understand, namely, that in the darkest moments we must cling to the Word, that giving voice to the Word is so very powerful. So in the darkest moment any person had ever endured, Jesus' tortured soul reached out, grasping for orienting comfort. So he quoted David's messianic prophecy to remind himself who he is, what he was doing, and why it had to be done. The work he had begun in the howling wilderness after his baptism had to be finished. That is what took place at the loneliest intersection the world has ever seen. Never has a person been so alone as was Jesus of Nazareth on the day he was crucified. Let's sum up today's podcast with some takeaways. When you owe someone money you can't afford to pay back, what do you tend to do? Well, you avoid them. Well, too many believers are avoiding intimate, life-giving communion with their Heavenly Father because they still feel like they're indebted to Him. Here's the truth we uncovered in today's podcast. You and I can come to our Heavenly Father confidently and without any sense of shame relating to any unpaid debt to His perfect law. Yes, we know we're flawed and make mistakes, but in Jesus' cry of Tetelestai, his paid in full means we can come freely and boldly. The debt has been paid in full. So let's not minimize the enormity and generosity of that gift by striving in our puny ways to fulfill an enormous obligation he has already completely met. Remember, Jesus did not come to set aside the law and our obligations to it. No, he came and fulfilled that obligation by hanging alone in the most desolate intersection any human has ever encountered. Jesus canceled out your certificate of debt, your legal obligation that consisted of hostile decrees against you. Now, the only law you need to follow is the law of love walking in generosity, kindness, and compassion towards others. As Galatians 6.2 exhorts us, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. See you next week.